All right, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, I'm just going to start off with just reading the first two verses because there's a lot to explain just from there. Um, and then after that, I'll go from there. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Therefore, since the promise to enter His rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also receive the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not unified with those who heard it in faith. Now back in Hebrews chapter 3, we saw how entering into rest in the Old Testament pointed to the people of Israel entering into the promised land. But here's the thing. That land of promise was more than just a piece of territory. It was more than just a piece of real estate. The land was just more proof of God's promise to Abraham. And it signified God's plan to restore creation after the fall that corrupted it. Thus, entering the promised land meant more than just entering, again, a piece of territory, piece of property. It meant enjoying and entering God's plan of salvation and inhabiting the very place where God set his dwelling. See, throughout most of the Old Testament, Israel disobeyed God and didn't enter God's rest. They were found to have fallen short. The old covenant people, for the most part, didn't have a circumcised heart and therefore didn't respond to the grace of God with faith. Even though they may have physically entered the territory of Canaan, they never truly entered into the spiritual rest that, that territory had typified. So, not only... Is this meant to remind us of that? But now the author also uses this information as a warning to us. Which is why he begins verse 1 with the word, therefore. See, their failure to enter into God's rest is meant to, well, it's a warning, but it's also meant to encourage us to continue in the faith. And here's the warning, or else will also end up outside of God's rest. Now, the old Puritan commentator, John Owen, described the five features of his rest for the believer. He says, rest means peace with God. Rest means freedom of the servile bondage-like spirit in the worship and service of God. Rest means deliverance from the burden of mosaic observance. Rest means the freedom of worship according to the gospel. Rest means the rest that God himself enjoys. So this exhortation comes out even more forcefully in verse 2. 
The good news was preached to the ancient Israelites, just as it's also been preached to those of us now reading this letter. But they, the ancient Israelites, failed to respond to that good news with faith. Now, a number of important points emerge from just these two verses. First, the passage reminds us that simply hearing the message of the gospel is insufficient for salvation. Just hearing that someone tell you, tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ, that's not enough. Jesus himself, quoting Isaiah chapter 6, spoke of this when he reminded his disciples that there are those who hear the message of the gospel, but don't believe it. Second, it reminds us that the only appropriate response to the gospel is faith. Israel heard the promises and warnings of God, but didn't respond with faith. And as a result, they perished in the wilderness. Third, this passage reminds us that faith is something much more than just intellectually apprehending the gospel message. The Israelites surely understood the promises and warnings God gave them, yet they didn't rest on the promises, on those promises. And I covered a lot of that last week. They disregarded the word of God and acted disobediently because they didn't believe the word of God. Remember, there was a few times where they just wanted to go back to Egypt, back to bondage, back to slavery. Finally, verses 1 and 2 remind us that the message of salvation wasn't different for those in the Old Testament. Now, regrettably, many false teachers have pointed to the numerous commands in the Old Testament and argue that works uh, saved those Old Testament saints. But now, by the work of Christ, grace, grace saves new, test, new covenant saints. This text, however, demonstrates that the same good news preached in the new covenant was also preached in the old covenant. That good news for the children of Israel was that there was a land flowing with, with milk and honey. Yes, there was going to be obstacles, but God promised them victory if they simply believed. Well, of course, now that Christ has come and has shown us the Father, we now have, we have the privilege of now having a fuller picture and a greater understanding of how God has acted to save. Nevertheless, the point is that the Old Covenant saints were saved by faith in the promises of God just as we are today. Now, back in the Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 13, it says that when the spies returned from scoping out the land of promise, he said this, it's a fabulous land, and I'm paraphrasing here. It's a fabulous land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's a huge problem. There are giants there, and we look like grasshoppers compared to them. Although they were only speaking figuratively, the people believed it, and they just ran with it. Oh, but we're only grasshoppers, they said. Well, it's that same grasshopper mentality that still paralyzes many Christians today. I'm not a man or a woman of, uh, of this, we say, or I'm not doing that. I can't receive God's blessing in my life because I'm blowing it here, or I must be bugging God there. No. According to our text, it's not their shortcomings that kept the children of Israel from entering the land of promise. It was their failure to mix God's promises with faith. Do you know what, uh, what's going to keep all of you from enjoying the best blessings in your family or at work or wherever it may be? The thing that's going to keep you from enjoying those best blessings is simply not believing what God says. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, 19, God said he would provide for all your needs. In Romans chapter 8, 28, that all things are working, are working together for good. And in Matthew 28, 20, that he is even with you, even until the end of the world. But these promises, they're not going to do you any good. Until you stop saying, what's the catch? This can't be true for me. I'm nothing but a grasshopper. What does it mean to mix the gospel with faith? Well, the answer is seen in Acts chapter 12. When Herod put Peter in prison, Scripture records that the church got together and they prayed. They prayed fervently. And as the story goes on, it says that God sent an angel to Peter as he slept between two guards. Arise, said the angel. And the chains, fe and the chains fell off Peter's wrists and legs. So what did Peter do? He got up and followed the angel into the city, even though Scripture tells us that he thought it was nothing more than a vision. But I'm certain, I'm pretty sure that as you walk through the street, it began to dawn, about, dawn upon him that uh, this wasn't a dream. This wasn't a vision. This was real. Now, had Peter not stood up and stepped out, had he not started moving, but instead said, this is a neat thought, an interesting insight that wouldn't have uh, happened if he, that's what he would have thought. But here's the thing. Again, had he not mixed the angel's commands with faith, even though the chains were off and a door was opened, he would have remained there in that jail cell. Well, what about us? What about all of you? 
God gives a promise to us, and we sometimes will say, it's a vision. It's meant for me to understand really a, a theological point, but it can't really mean I can step out. So I'll just stay in my prison, wait for my execution, and be comforted with this thought. No, get up, step out, go for it, and you might discover its reality. Listen, church, the word mixed with faith means we stand up and start moving. You pray for your teenage son or daughter. Lord, revive him, bless him, help him. Get up and expect him to do well. Start, start treating him like or her like he or she is doing well. And you'll find the promise is true. But if you stay in your cell theorizing and saying, I need to study deeper on this matter, you'll never enter the land of promise regarding your situation. How much faith does it take? Look at the believers in Acts chapter 12. Knock, knock, knock. It's Peter. No, it can't be Peter, Lord. We pray that uh, you would free Peter. Knock, knock, knock. It's Peter. No, it can't be Peter, Lord. We pray you would free Peter. Well, how much faith did they have? About a mustard seed's worth. But Jesus said, that's all it takes to move mountains. I am truly convinced that if you only have enough faith to pray, that's enough. To start things happening, to, to start those doors or to start doors opening, it doesn't take much. The promises, the blessings, the good things of God happen when you take the word and mix it with faith. So get up. Do it. The Lord is calling you. The Lord is telling you something. The Lord has revealed something to you. Go do it. Step out in faith. Now, I want to move on now to the next few verses of our of this chapter and so let's pick up in verse 3 and I'll be it'll be explaining more of what I've been saying here what God's word has been saying here so let's pick up in verse 3 for we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said so I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will, not, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains 
for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. He again specified, specifies a certain day. Today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken, spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. In verse 3, there, what we just read, the author once again quotes from Psalm 95, on which he has been basing his arguments since Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. They will not enter my rest, resoundingly condemns the wilderness generation for its failure to trust in the promises of God to enter his Sabbath rest. Now, while Psalm 95 and 11 convicts the wilderness generation for its unfaithfulness, the author of Hebrews uses it to reiterate a great theme of this passage. Those who believe enter God's rest. In fact, the end of verse 3 affirms the availability of all that rest to all generations, even the wilderness generation. See, that fact is the fact is that God's rest started at the foundation of the world. A notion the author states in verse 4 by re referencing what happened on the seventh day of creation. And see, ever since then, the opportunity to join his rest. It remains. When he then re repeats the quote from Psalm 95 in verse 5, he's emphasizing the urgency, the urgency of entering God's rest. And when a biblical author repeatedly returns to the same issue, it's most likely because the hard-heartedness of sin-prone people, it requires repetition. See, the only thing that can satisfy restlessness in the human soul is the rest of God. And the only way you can access God's rest is by faith in Jesus Christ. The one who secures God's rest for believers through his death and resurrection. If you choose to reject the promise of the gospel, then you too will die in the wilderness. But if you trust in the promises and in, the, and, and in God who makes them, guess what? You'll enter his rest this is a message stubborn sinners need to hear over and over and over again. In verses 6 and 7, the author then brilliantly applies what he said previously 
as the words therefore uh, indicate. These verses are also rich with so many rich truths. It's just amazing here, these two verses 6 and 7 show you how. There the author, he affirms both David's authorship of Psalm 95 and the historicity of the events surrounding the wilderness generation. Moreover, just as David did for his original audience, the author of Hebrews applies the significance of the wilderness events to the current situation of his congregation. In other words, Psalm 95 simultaneously condemns the wilderness generation for its disobedience and invites the original hearers to respond with God's promises and faith. Furthermore, just as David urged the original hearers to respond to God's faithfulness today, so too the author of Hebrews urges his readers to respond to God's faithfulness today. David's words to the Israelites in his own time are just as valid and urgent now. God has appointed today for us so that we might respond, so that you might respond to his call in faith and not harden your hearts. We cannot presume upon tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Today might be the only day that you have left. But as long as you have today, you have an invitation of faith. Now, Joshua's name in verse 8 can seem now somewhat unexpected. However, once we understand the context of Psalm 95 and what the point and the point the author is is making, the introduction of Joshua at this point makes sense. You see, until this verse, the author has essentially given his readers a biblical theology of Israel's disobedience. Psalm 95 anchors his biblical theology because it both rehearses the story of Israel's disobedience and it also provides God's interpretation of those events. As we've already covered, Psalm 95 specifically focuses on Israel's rebellion against God and against Moses in the wilderness. A rebellion that kept them from entering the promised land. Moses, however, didn't lead the people into the promised land. His, success, his successor, Joshua, did that. Which is why the author introduces him. In verse 8, the, the mention of Joshua, it ought to remind us of that the real name of Jesus is a variation of the name Joshua. But see, this second Joshua will finish what the first Joshua left unfinished. Previous to this, he 
demonstrated that Christ is superior to the angels and, and Moses. Well, now he must demonstrate that Christ is superior to Joshua. As the writer notes, even though Joshua led the people of Israel into Canaan, he didn't lead them into God's rest. Even in Canaan, the people of Israel continued to rebel against God. When the people of Israel journeyed across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, they didn't journey into rest. They simply moved from one place to another. Thus, Psalm 95, written by David long after the events of the conquest, still speaks of Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And so how now do we, God's people, enter into this rest? Well, the whole letter of Hebrews tells us, by believing in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Joshua led Israel into the land, but Jesus leads his people into God's true rest. Verse 10 elaborates on this. We rest from our works and enter God's rest when we trust in Christ. See, when you do this, you no longer have to live your lives trying to prove your righteousness before God. Instead, you rest from that labor because Christ has already proved that righteousness on your, on your behalf. Thus, our rest is in him. Nothing else. No doctrine. No set of ideas. Many of you know this, but if you meet a troubled, crying child and try to comfort them and give them rest using ideas and logic, you know that it won't do much good. But when mommy comes or daddy comes, the child is happy again. And so you see, the Canaan rest for Israel is a picture of the spiritual rest you will find in Christ when you surrender to him. When you come to Christ by faith, you will find salvation rest. When you yield and learn of him and obey him by, by faith, you will enjoy submission rest. The first is a peace with God. And the second is a peace of God. So it's by believing we enter into rest. It's by obeying God by faith and surrendering to his will that the rest enters into us. Now, like John 3.16, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10, powerfully captures the message of the gospel in a single verse. Let me read it to you again. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Brothers and sisters, the gospel isn't morality. 
it isn't re external religion, and it isn't a seven-step program for obtaining a better life. The gospel, my friends, is the message of Christ's accomplishments on our behalf so that we might rest from our works by trusting in his work. When you trust in Christ's work, you rest from trusting your own. So now I want to read just a couple more verses. Share that with you. So let's pick up in verse 11. We're just going to read verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4. Again, this is all just the one thought from the author here. Verse 11. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that verse. Have it memorized, have it maybe highlighted in your Bibles. And if you don't, that's a good one to memorize, to have close to your heart, to be able to pull out any time that you need it. But let me go back just a little bit and explain a few things from what I just read. Now, verse 11 introduces the so what of the preceding section. So we've been asking, if you've been asking, so what? So what he mentions all this? What's the big deal? Well, verse 11 introduces that. In light of what has already been said, let us then make every effort to enter that rest. Now, the way this verse is, is mentioned here, is, it's written here, it's, it's an exhortation to strive for God's rest so that the threat of falling by disobedience will not come true for these believers as they did for the wilderness generation. Church, we mustn't be like the Israelites in that wilderness. We must strive to enter God's rest. In other words, we must work at resting. This means that we must work against all our efforts to prove our righteousness. We must strive against all efforts to justify ourselves. One of our responsibilities in this Christian life is to exhort one another to faithfulness. This is one of the things you do here every Sunday and as we all worship together, as we all sit under the preaching of the Word of God. This is what we do when we sing together. This is what we do when we pray together. 
This is what we do when we fellowship together. We gather in corporate worship to encourage one another to be fully satisfied in Christ and in him alone. The author also underlines the role of God's word in our perseverance in verses 12 and 13. The designation of word of God requires some definition. The author uses the phrase to point out, to point to the entirety of divine revelation, both written and incarnate. Now, regrettably, many Christians divorce the Bible from Jesus. I don't need theology or the Bible. I just want Jesus. They may say, but here's the thing. This is a misguided assessment. Christ cannot be divorced from Scripture. You can't say that you just want Jesus and not the Bible. Our knowledge of Jesus as a divine son of God and his, accomplishment, and his accomplishments for us only come through Scripture. We can't have Jesus Christ apart from the witness of the Bible. The two are married to one another. They go hand in hand. The author establishes two characteristics about the word of God in verse 12. First, the word of God is living and effective. This highlights the enduring living words of scripture. Since God is the author of scripture, that means it's not a dead book. As God lives, his word lives. If God is eternal, then his word is eternal. Furthermore, we see throughout scripture, when God speaks, God acts. This is what is meant by the adjective effective. For example, God created the heavens and the earth with, with his word. Thus, scripture, because it is God's word, is alive and life-giving. The Bible isn't a bunch of dead, lifeless words. It's the living word of God. It accomplishes everything God wills. As the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, in, in Isaiah 55, verse 11, so my word that comes, out of, comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it, will do, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Second, here in verse uh, 12, the author describes scripture as sharper than any double-edged sword. A sword in scripture is penetrating as far as a sword, scripture is penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
the description of the Bible is as a sword, is that it can pierce and divide the soul. And it, demonst- it demonstrates the invasive quality of the word. When we read scripture with a humble heart of submission, rather than with a prideful heart of suspicion, then it's not we who read scripture. It's scripture that reads us. Scripture untangles the human heart and unearths sin like no other book can. No other book can discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Only God's word can do that. Only God's word can show you where you're falling short, where you've been sinning. It's truthful to you. It shows you your sin right to your face. And either you can ignore it or you can keep on with that sin as if you were just ignorant to it. Or you can humbly come before God and ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to change you. And he will. He will start removing that junk that you still have, that you're still holding on to. And your heart will be transformed. Scripture is, it also says there, Scripture is like a scalpel wielded by God to perform spiritual surgery. In conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the Word of God cuts right through the sin and darkness of the human heart to restore spiritual health and vitality for Christ. Without the word, we're as good as dead. God's word, however, eradicates the disease of the human heart and breathes life where there's death. Now, verse 13 shifts from the word of God to God himself, which shows the intrinsic link between God and scripture. Just as God's word graciously reveals God to man, it also makes man accountable before God as judge. When God reveals himself to us, we turn and we in turn realize that we all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. See, scripture, it strips us bare before our own eyes and before the eyes of God because it exposes, the, exposes God's ineffable character. As Calvin famously said, it's certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked on God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. God gives us, ladies and gentlemen, the, the gift of scripture so that we won't follow the example of Israel's disobedience. This book here, 
is our guide to trusting God and finding full satisfaction in him. Furthermore, God has revealed the truth about Christ to us in his word. This is why we must be students of God's word and maintain the centrality of its teaching. Scripture, the word of God, leads us to Christ-likeness. It makes us more like him. Uh, I want to begin closing by just sharing a few action steps that you can take. Start taking today, if you haven't done these already, to show you how Scripture can lead you to be more Christ-like. Things you can do. Number one, treasure God's word above all worldly counsel. It, it simply amazes me how Christians will pay psychologists hundreds of dollars for advice or therapists or counselors, psychiatrists, I said psychologists, but psychiatrists for their advice that is empty of God's word. But they won't consult the Bible for wisdom on how to live. They say, but I needed advice on some practical, re practical relational problem. Why do you think the Bible was written? The whole thing is summed up by love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That's pretty relational. It's not only a sin to neglect God's word and turn to empty, empty wisdom of the world. It's also just plain dumb. Now, I'm not saying that, that psych, you know, psychology and therapists and counseling doesn't have its place. I know that it's helped me out in my long journey and that I've, it helped me to deal with some things that I never dealt with. These were just tools that God used in my life. But in the end, I learned that all my answers, all I needed to know was found in God's word. Point being, again, treasure God's word above all worldly counsel. Second, read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word. It, will, it won't do you any good if you don't know what it says. Do your best to memorize key verses like the one I mentioned before. Because you won't obey it if it's not in your heart. You won't stop at work or at home just to say, wait a minute. I know there's a verse that applies here. But I need to get out my concordance and find it. Number three, apply, trust, and obey God's word. The point of Bible study isn't to fill your head with knowledge about the end times or about uh, theological arguments to support your favorite views. No. It's to change your heart and your life. Always study it with a view to obedience. Four, live with your heart exposed 
to God's word. Don't cover up any sinful thoughts. The word, if the word convicts you, stop and confess the matter to God. If need be, resolve to, resolve to go to anybody that you've wronged and ask for forgiveness. Remember, God knows every sinful, every sinful thought you'll ever have. And he still sent his son to bear the penalty of your sin. And finally, drink in all the biblical preaching you can observe. Don't get sucked in to the preaching, into the preaching life moment. And here's what I mean. Well, Calvin commented on verse, thre- on verse 12 like this. He said, if, any, if anyone thinks that the air is beaten by, em- by an empty sound when the word of God is preached, he is greatly mistaken. For it is, living, for it is a living thing and full of hidden power, which leaves nothing in man untouched. Be diligent, my friends, ladies and gentlemen, to saturate yourself with God's word with the aim of, of obedience so that you do not fall as the stubborn Israelites did in the wilderness. So again, treasure God's word with uh, more than world, any worldly counsel. Read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word. Apply, trust, and obey God's word. Live with your heart exposed to God's word. And finally, drink in all the biblical preaching you can observe, absorb. Ladies and gentlemen, those watching, listening to this message now, maybe you've been living in the wilderness for a long time and now you see your need for Christ. And he's revealed himself through this message or through the word, his word that I, the passages that I just covered. And you see your need for a savior. You see that his word has penetrated into the heart, into your heart and has been doing some surgery there, like a scalpel. He's... Now open your heart and exposed it. Well, if you're ready to give your heart to Jesus, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, if you're ready to be born again, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And with all your heart, with all sincerity, pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And so now I turn for my sins. I repent of those sins and confess you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Now, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born-again life. 
in your name. Amen. If you pray that, please reach out to us. We want to help you in your next steps. And if you're here in El Paso, we want to invite you here to Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel in Northeast El Paso. And if you're not here, you're somewhere, give us a call. Maybe we can help you find a church wherever you're at um, where you'll be taught the Word of God. So, um, again, welcome to the family of God if you prayed that. But uh, if you haven't yet, and you don't wait. Don't wait any longer. Today's the day. You can rewind this video, rewind this audio message, and then and, and pray that. If you missed out on that initial prayer, believe in Christ. Trust in Him today. Hope you have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next time. Be blessed. We love you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel. We hope we were blessed by Pastor Angel's message. For more information about Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel, such as our service time or how to get connected, please visit our website at fvccelp.com. If the Lord is leading you to give to the ministry of Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel, there's a PayPal link in the video description below. Once again, thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Calvary Chapel. We hope to see you again soon.